I think it's about asking questions and always being willing to learn is something that's really important from other investors. And then I also listen to, I do a lot of talking with founders. I'll ask, was that helpful? Is that not helpful? How can I be helpful? What would make sense? You know, like you, you got to really understand your customer. And then I, our customer is our founders. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the FinTech Leaders Podcast, where we learn from today's global leaders in FinTech business and beyond. Coming to you from New York City, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. My guest today is Abby Levy, managing partner and co-founder of Primetime Partners, an early stage venture capital fund with over $50 million in assets under management that backs companies and entrepreneurs transforming the quality of living for older adults. Abby co-founded Primetime in 2020, along with legendary investor Alan Patrikoff. Prior to Primetime, Abby was the founding president of Thrive Global alongside Ariana Huffington and spent time at McKinsey, Teach for America, SoulCycle, and other impressive companies. In this episode, we discuss the incredible opportunity to build and invest in businesses focused on people's second chapter of life and why this is more than just servicing seniors, why Primetime's portfolio sits at the intersection of fintech and healthcare, and how some of their portfolio companies are addressing a national retirement planning crisis, lessons and tactics she's learned over the years by working closely with business legends like Ariana Huffington and Alan Patrikoff, and just a lot more. And I hope you enjoy this great conversation with Abby Levy from Primetime, and special thank you to Alan Patrikoff for making this a reality. Well, Abby, welcome to the FinTech Leaders Podcast. Truly, truly excited to have you here all the way from New York City, just a few blocks from where I am. <laughs> How's it going today, Abby? Awesome, Miguel. It's a beautiful day here in New York and really happy to be here with you. Uh, I'm honored. I'm honored that you're here. So, Abby, we, it's always helpful to hear a, a bit of background from our guests. So maybe tell us how you got to your current role, because I, I know you spent some time at SoulCycle, at Thrive with Ariana Huffington, uh, and, and also McKinsey previously. So take all that and tell us how you got to you know, primetime partners. Great. Well, it's a it's a interesting question I reflect upon often because my career has been has definitely not been linear. Um, there have been many connect the dots moments, but somehow they all connected to lead me to starting Primetime Partners. Um, so, for those that don't know, Primetime Partners is a venture capital fund focused on the quality of living of older adults. We are a seed to Series A fund, and we make investments across the topics that the population age 50 plus cares about. They care about their health, they care about financial security, and they care about having meaningful experiences, which has had of our 25 investments, about two thirds be healthcare related, and the remainder fintech with a little bit of consumer sprinkled in. Um, And so how I became an investor uh, was really uh, by necessity, uh, which is to say I got very interested in the space of aging and longevity four or five years ago as a personal uh, question a personal question for my father who was retired to say, what happens when you retire? What do you do in our society? 
as a retired person. Um, and since my dad was not a one percenter or didn't play golf, uh, it left a lot of questions for how to spend your time meaningfully. So that evolved into me writing a few business plans um, for different operating companies or businesses to start. And then someone said to me, you know, Abby, you've got all these ideas. Why don't you start an investment fund? That's the right entrepreneurial venture uh, to back dozens of founders, not just pick one idea to build it. Um, And so that's how I ended up starting Primetime Partners two years ago. But you asked the question, which is how did I get there? And I think I got to uh, Primetime through this combination of dots that defines my career. Um, Spent most of my career either uh, in marketing or BD uh, at brands like OXO, uh, advisory capacity at Hearst, um, and then at SoulCycle, but also had the experience of being a founder with Ariana Huffington at Thrive Global. Um, And all of these different operating or advising roles, the kind of consistent theme was always building something new. And over the past four or five years between Thrive and SoulCycle, it was around health and wellness. And so I got very interested in health and wellness, but also have spent a lot of my time in the zero to one phase or or zero to two phase. So uh, that is how uh, I started, how and why I started Primetime and kind of the, the dots that got me there. I'm a big fan of your co-founder, and and that's Alan Patrickoff. H- how did you cross paths with with Alan? You know, how do you join forces? Well, listen, Alan's been an investor for 50 years, having started Apex, uh, which most people don't know. The, it's one of the largest private equity firms globally, and Apex actually stands for Alan Patrickoff and Associates. Uh, so he is the founding moniker as well as the founding person behind Apex. And then he wanted to go even earlier stage, and so he started Graycroft Partners, which is now a multi-billion-dollar venture capital fund. Um, so I had known, of course, of Alan, um, and I had also gotten to know him professionally because he was an investor in Thrive Global and was on, was a board advisor. So we had the chance to get to know each other through that experience. But it was actually through his uh, one of his three sons, Jonathan, who I went to grad school with. Um, so those those grad school connections do make a difference. Um, and so I was telling Jonathan um, in fall of 2019 that I was going to start a venture fund focused on aging. And he literally put his fork down and said, that's what my dad wants to do. In fact, I think there was some expletive in that sentence uh, around that's what my dad wants to do. Um, and so Alan and Jonathan and I met uh, for lunch at a diner, as all good meetings somehow focus on food. Uh, and we kind of agreed that we would work together and, you know, put together, you know, kind of the formation, the name, the pitch deck, et cetera, for primetime partners. Um, and in March of 2020, we were ready to go to market. But something else happened in March of 2020, which is the United States lockdown for COVID. And that kind of gave us a couple week pause to figure out what we wanted to do. Uh, but we kept going. We made four investments before we'd even raised the fund because I had been out talking to founders and in, in the space for a little while now. Um, and then we raised the fund over the course of the summer um, of 2020. And uh, it's really been a wonderful uh, working relationship. I learned so much from Alan and, and uh, we really have very complementary skill sets. So I, I, I think um, I'm a huge fan of surrounding yourself with the best possible people. And, and clearly you, you're a very impressive person because you also surround yourself with uh, global examples of, of entrepreneurship, of, of business and, and leaders like, you know, Alan and, and Ariana Huffington. What, what have you learned 
from them over over the last decade? You know, I was thinking about it because you, you sent me the questions in advance. So I've been thinking about this. <laughs> and I think oftentimes, you know, I'm 47. Each of those individuals are older and more experienced than I am. Um, and so oftentimes there are these like big life lessons, but I've learned so many tactics, like wonderful tactics. Like, you know, Ariana was, has been amazing. She had this phrase that she actually learned from Ray Dalio called close the back door. And the point was that as an organization or an individual, if you always keep your options open, like the back doors open, you're not able to move forward. And so she at thrive. She would say, you know, we got to close the back door. And I was, I've always been someone who always kept all my options open. That's probably why I was good at BD. Um, and so I found that to be kind of one of those very tactical pieces of advice. In addition to Ariana taught me to drink hot water with lemon all day long. And so that keeps you hydrated and energized and it's so healthy for you. But you know, there's, there's things like that, that you, that you pick up. And I probably have a hundred tactical points I've learned from Ariana and from Alan, you know, he has been so amazing at demonstrating the, um, reciprocity of relationships. I mean, his book that just came out, No Red Lights, which is an amazing book that every entrepreneur or investor should read, is is really a testament to the hundreds of entrepreneurs and investors that he's mentored and worked with. And that reciprocity of relationship building, it's not networking the way that I took a class in business school on networking. It's really about relationship building. And I've learned a tremendous amount from him on relationship building. I've also learned a lot about negotiating. He is a mastermind negotiator. And that's something that I think is an apprenticeship business, is learning how to negotiate uh, versus something that's that's you know taught in school. Absolutely fascinating. And you know, closing the back door. I'd never heard of that, but I remember when I was in business school, I, I said to myself, I'm, I'm going to be my own boss after yeah. graduating Wharton. And so that meant I didn't recruit at all. I didn't even try to talk to it. So I was forced to make it work. So that pressure definitely helps. <laughs> uh, so tell us a bit about uh, primetime. You know, what uh, I know that you're looking for entrepreneurs and, and companies that are transforming the quality of living of older adults. And, but how do you define that? I, I'm really, really curious to hear your thesis. It's such an interesting question because when we launched, we got a lot of questions from potential LPs or investors saying, you know, is anyone else doing this? And my response always was, well, every venture capitalist is doing that um, because everybody, it's a common demographic shift. 25% of our population is going to be age 65 plus. It's the fastest growing demographic globally. And so on every venture capitalist um, investment themes was a bullet point called silver tsunami or age tech or, or something around this huge demographic shift, whether you're a healthcare fund, a fintech fund, a consumer fund, a prop tech fund, it's an irrefutable data point that presents tremendous dislocation and opportunity. And so when we have been kind of grouped with or, or people have been talking about it, is it silver tech? Is it age tech? Um, and I have ultimately pushed back on that because the way that most people have defined that is really on this population of seniors and seniors really looked at as elderly. And what I think the insight that primetime has is that it's actually a much bigger challenge and opportunity, which is kind of once you hit 55-ish, maybe when you're you know either empty, empty nesting, 
starting to no longer be as valued in the workplace, that there's this major shift that happens in your life. And yet, as a society, we kind of haven't accommodated for that. And so we really define this as the second chapter of life. And so on the one hand, that second chapter might be defined by a life event in your 50s or 60s. But on the other side, it's increased because of longevity. I find this fascinating, Miguel, but 50% of people born after 2007, so these are my kids' ages, 50% of them will live to be 100. So we're talking about in the next 60 or 70 years, half of our population are going to be centigenarians. And we have a society that just doesn't even address or think about issues for older adults because they assume government is. At age 65, the government takes care of you. You know, Social Security, Medicare. But like, if your life's going to live to be 100, I'm at the halfway point. That's a lot of different thinking involved. And that's huge implications for every area of our economy, particularly fintech, because 50% of Americans are going to run out of money. And that is not just an issue that our government needs to solve. The private sector needs to solve that and need to solve it through innovative solutions. And that's why fintech is such an important piece of our thesis. And, and I noticed that within fintech, planning for retirement seems to be one of your central thesis. Uh, I found four companies, at least, Retirable, Rocket Dollar, Fraction, and, and Sagewell, that one way or another are addressing this incoming problem of, of planning for retirement. Uh, maybe tell us a bit more about uh, this, this fintech angle. Absolutely. I mean, so if you start with this premise that most people are um, unprepared for, for their retirement, or, or frankly, um, you, know, you know, 50% of Americans don't have a retirement plan. Um, and if you don't have a retirement plan, how do you actually anticipate what those costs are going to be? Um, in fact, 90% of Americans think that Medicare will cover in-home health care. So in-home health care is when you need someone to assist you with your activities of daily living, you'll get a home health aid. A family member does it a lot, but if you don't have a family member or they're not available, then you would have to hire a home health aid. Um, and that two-thirds of Americans are going to need this in-home care with an average bill of $138,000. I'm tossing these numbers around because these are big numbers that people aren't anticipating. They're, they don't know that it's happening. It's not going to happen. And so without a financial plan, how do you start to think about this or anticipate that? And so that's why we have invested in a business called Retireable, which helps the average American get a retirement plan without the big fixed fees of for higher you know, net worth individuals. Um, and then from there, helps them uh, figure out how to kind of parse out their uh, retirement savings in more of a paycheck type product. Um, and Sagewell is another business that is actually a neobank for seniors. I know we hear a lot, I'm sure in your podcast about neobanks. Um, and that's very much focused on individual populations like students or first generation Americans or immigrants. Um, but older Americans are also an old, underserved, underbanked population. Uh, because the specific questions that an older American has around, you know, how do I tap into my home equity? When do I take uh, social security? Should I, you know, is my insurance coverage enough? Do I need a medical supplement to cover my, you know, all of these are very big financial decisions that there aren't, there isn't a lot of guidance for. So Sagewell is the trusted kind of partner 
to older Americans um, with, you know, the tradition, you know, in the form of a traditional bank. Um, and so those are some businesses are on the planning side. But, you know, the, the, the other piece, there's a couple other pieces that we're super interested in. So obviously, if you don't have a plan, you can't make good choices. Um, but the second piece is that our most of our financial services industry is focused on asset accumulation. Think about it. Like, you know, you and I are, are at the point where everything's around uh, make more, buy more, you know, invest more. It's all about more. Well, in your second half of life, it's about asset decumulation. And as a society, and I'm a society, our infrastructure and our financial services system, if everything's based on AUM, no one wants decumulation. You don't have any partners in the ecosystem that are saying, hey, decumulation's coming, so we need to plan for it. And so we've invested in some businesses, for example, a business called Fraction, which is around asset decumulation, which is tapping into the, your, the value of your, your home equity. And not in a, you know, the way reverse mortgages do, which makes you feel like it's a fire sale and it's a situation under duress, but it's actually part of a planned strategy of asset decumulation. And that there's a bunch of businesses that can and should be around asset decumulation. And then the last area of fintech that, you know, we've been super interested in, and there's other areas to come, at least in terms of our portfolio, um, is around funding long-term care. So I mentioned the statistic before that two-thirds of Americans are going to need to pay for in-home care. Right now, there's just not enough products out there that allow people to cost-effectively save or have an insurance product for this. So we're very interested in alternative insurance products that take into account the reality of the future expenses uh, that are going to be incurring. And we've invested in a business called Home Care Genie that is a novel set set of financial products to address that. And and you are focused solely on the U.S. market for now. Is that correct? I mean, we have two investments in Canada, one in Israel. In terms of the founding teams, we have been focused on America because that's where the largest healthcare and fintech, uh, you know, businesses exist. Um, a couple of our businesses are global, though, in nature. One of our investments is a business called Get Set Up. It's amazing, Miguel. It's it combats social loneliness for older adults. It's a live peer-to-peer learning platform where older adults teach each other a variety of topics from fitness to languages to technology. And uh, they about 4 million users a month, half are in the US, half are in India. Um, and so that, you know, content business is something that is very, you know, crosses borders easily. But things that are specific, like our 401k investment we're about to make, I mean, that's specific to the US regulatory situation, as is healthcare. And do you find, have you learned in the last two years, uh, maybe some examples of other countries or other cultures that are taking better care of their aging population? I mean, it's interesting. It is, you know, in Japan is often cited as, as, as the poster child of this topic and some of the Asian countries, as well as the Scandinavian ones, because they, you know, if you have socialized medicine or state-run medicine, you know, that's the biggest cost and concern for older adults is, is healthcare. Um, and so the Japan is, has actually a, a larger percentage, up to 30% of their population is 65 plus. Uh, but they have uh, government-sponsored healthcare, and they also have more intergenerational living, and they have a very advanced system of senior living that is a lot of it state-run as well. So I think where there has been a more um, a smaller society with with more 
uh, not small, sorry, smaller populations where you, the government, it all makes sense in that sense, uh, that that has, has worked better. I would say, though, that we are, this question of in-home care and aging in place is a huge issue, not even, bef- even before COVID. Um, it's, you know, 90% of Americans want to age in their home. That statistic didn't change pre or post-COVID. Everyone assumes it's because of COVID. No, I mean, of course you want to live in your home. Um, and so that has persisted in many environments. It's interesting. We've been looking at investment in India. And in India, which is much more of a multi-generational living situation, senior living isn't really a big industry there yet. But as more of the younger generations move out of their hometowns and, you know, it's it, it, in that sense, it's becoming more like America where you don't have that that proximity of young people to, to look after older people. I also think the one area that's interesting is if you look at the retirement ages across different cultures, America's definitely more ageist with a younger retirement age. Um, and that negatively impacts uh, the financial security of Americans. Yeah, yeah. I remember my, my grandfather, he worked until he was like 85 or something. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. He, he, and it kept him going. It kept him going. He was so happy with that. Um, so let's let's talk about uh, something you, you kind of touched on uh, briefly, which is the, it sounds like the rest of the industry, the venture capital industry, has been looking at the opportunity, but has been looking at it in a very different way than, than you are. Are you pleased with how your co-investment partners have come on board and are you seeing a change of mindset? It's a, no one's asked me that question. I, I think the reluctance to invest in this space historically has been a question around adoption because people had, have discounted the direct-to-consumer path saying, listen, the D2C playbook of, you know, Facebook, Google, you know, all the digital marketing tactics that people use D2C, is that going to work with an older generation? Um, So that's one area where people have been skeptical. But the second is on enterprise distribution, which is historically, uh, you know, if a payer, like a health plan, isn't paying for it, you know, then you can't bring a business to market. And similarly, if a life insurance company isn't paying for it, then you can't bring it to market if the employer is not paying for it. And so those sales cycles and those lead times are very, very long. Um, And the employer channel isn't great for older adults because a smaller percentage of them are working than a younger population. So that's all by way of saying, I think people have been skeptical about ultimately go-to-market and distribution uh, for new businesses uh, that, that focus on the older adult population. Our approach, and partially because I'm a marketer by background, our approach was actually there's so many sub-segments within this audience. If you just were to say older adults, or even let's take seniors, seniors being different from boomers, you know, seniors are, you know, 75 plus, boomers 50 to 75, roughly speaking, that if you just looked at that as a monolithic group, 50 to 70, age 50 to 70, it would be like saying marketing to a 20-year-old is marketing the same as a 40-year-old. Like we don't do that. We don't do that in any other space, but somehow older adults have become this one monolithic group that people say, well, you can't reach them. And what we've seen across our portfolio, about a third of our portfolio is D2C, that that's absolutely not true. Um, that if you have a very focused, first of all, this audience, particularly 50 to 65, they've been digital, you know, I mean, for 25 years, 
since the internet, you know, really became pervasive. So that's not an issue. Um, and they're the fastest growing group on Facebook, can spend more time on Facebook than any other audience. Um, so absolutely, you know, that if you start to pull out segments um, in this, in this, you know, community, uh, you find that. Um, and so I don't think that we're seeing it any differently. I think we just are more optimistic than other investors because we're seeing this behavior start to change. And COVID was a huge accelerant of it. I mean, 77% of older adults use telemedicine during COVID. So you're telling me that 77% of people use video chat. That did not happen. That, that, that ability, I mean, I don't know how many of your family members you FaceTimed or the equivalent during COVID. I mean, we were all tech support for everyone older. We were setting up their vaccine appointments for them. We were helping them figure out, you know, how to shop online. We were showing them how to connect with, with their grandkids over a variety of mediums. And so that technology comfort around video only evolved over the past 24 months. So we're going to, we're very optimistic about all the changes of both the consumer behavior and the enterprise channels that are going to persist and really fuel the growth of this sector. And that's why also we are a seed to series A, you know, we're really focused on early stage. And so I feel really happy that we usually get invited into deals by other venture funds because we have this, I'd say, consumer belief system that we can kind of bring to bear, you know, with the companies we work with. Let's talk a bit about your founders, because at the end of the day, it's all about yeah. founders, right? Um, do you find that they're different than, you know, the typical portfolio of a venture capital fund? Is there an age difference or are your businesses being led by young people as well? Maybe t tell us a bit about the, the, your, your founder portfolio. I wish I could say that we had more older adults as founders. That was one of our, I'd say, uh, aspirations for, for Fund One. Um, of our 25 founders, five are age 50 plus, which is a lot for that. Oh, I, you know, sorry, one of those has aged into being 50 plus since we've invested. So it's borderline. But, you know, in general, you know, most founders are in their 30s. Um, that's the typical age. Um, so... We're, we're happy about that. But I would say our founder profile is not very different. Um, you know, our fintech founders look like fintech founders. Our healthcare founders look like healthcare founders. I would say there's probably two different, other than the eight, the older adult founders, probably two other differences. One is that probably because I'm a female GP and because aging has always historically fallen on the shoulders of women, um, the daughters the daughter is typically the one and it's, 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 it's just, that'll change over time, but it's still a remnant of the role the, the woman plays in the family, but the, the daughter is typically the caregiver. Um, so of our portfolio, um, almost 50% of our CEOs are women. Um, and that's not founders, but CEOs. And I think that maybe it's like 45%. And I think that is a function of both the areas we're investing in, the fact that I'm a female GP. Um, so I'd say that's a little bit disproportionate. Um, and then the other thing that's disproportionate is social impact. Yeah. All of these founders have a personal narrative of why starting a business that impacts older adults and not all that, I mean, you know, we're invested in businesses where it's a smaller piece of their mission, not always a, the biggest piece of their mission, but it's a mission driven business, um, uh, because you cannot be talking about any underserved population without being a founder on a mission. 
um, for social impact. And so I'd say that is a common thread. Everybody has a narrative of how this issue has impacted them personally. Love it. Love it. Yeah, it's the best founders, those that have a personal mission. Yeah. Because they were touched by the problem somehow, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, love that. So you sounds like you were possibly an angel investor before becoming a yes. VC. Uh, but it's very different, of course, um, being a professional investor versus a, an angel. Well, what have the, been the biggest takeaways for you over the last few years as a VC and maybe some unexpected lessons? Yeah, I think the hardest transition for me is because I've been an operator myself and spent a lot of time advising businesses is being able to invest and be hands off. I almost invert it. You know, when you talk and and you run a fund, Miguel, you know that, you know, every fund, every fund manager tells the portfolio company CEO how much value they're going to add. And I think one of my challenges is to actually step back a bit and not be as involved in the businesses. Cause as an angel, you're very involved in the businesses you know, they're they, the founder is looking for you as though you're an extra headcount to, to really help them go do things. Um, and so trying to figure out how my team and I can be supportive and provide those introductions they need and help them think through their, their next year's financial plan and do all of that without the risk of really becoming a consultant to the business, which is in some ways my background. And so I would say that has been the hardest transition is to step out a little bit versus kind of really be in there. And I think that's also been a thing where, you know, if you, a lot of our founders are super happy that we're super involved because we are extra smart resources and, you know, highly connected people to help them grow their business. So I think that's one big difference is the level of, um, day-to-day or week-to-week involvement in a business. And then the second piece is really portfolio theory, uh, which is you know when you are investing other people's money, which is the difference between being an angel and, and being a fund manager, you do need to think about fund composition in a different way. And so I love that we're diversified across industry sector, across business model, a little bit across stage of growth because we're pre-seed, seed, and series A, um, and across, I'd say in some ways, most of our stuff is, is anti-cyclical. I mean, it's, it's not getting impacted by what's going on right now in the economy. Um, and so that diversification is, is, has been really important. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you, you mentioned, uh, VC being an apprenticeship business. Yeah. Um, thinking back also to your entrepreneurial career and, and, and now as an investor, um, maybe putting Alan and Ariana aside for a second, who, who else, who have been some of the most helpful and consequential people uh, in your journey? I mean, I find other investors, I mean, you know, so helpful. Um, how somebody looks at a deal, how somebody thinks about the growth of, of the marketplace. I mean, I think that's actually where in some ways, my McKinsey training has been super helpful. Uh, well, two things. One, I'm the youngest in my family. I'm the youngest of eight grandkids in my generation. I have always been someone who learns from others. And at the end of the day, venture capital is an apprentice business, but it's an information business. It's all it is. It's information. You know, it's yes, there's judgment, but you need really good information. And so how do you get good information? You talk to people, you listen, 
you ask questions. And I learned that right out of college in my consulting experience. And so I think to the people who've been influential are other investors where I'm very lucky. My peer group and, you know, is very well connected. Uh, and so I can kind of call up anybody and who are senior investors across, you know, all the brand name funds and all, all the smaller funds and say, you know, both, what do you think of this deal? But how do you think about this space? What would your advice be to me? And so I went on a listening tour before starting primetime, speaking with, you know, from Benchmark to Andreessen to, you know, just really talking to other investors, you know, what are your lessons learned? How would you do this differently? I mean, B Capital has been very helpful on that front. So I think it's about asking questions and always being willing to learn is something that's really important from other investors. And then I also listen to, I do a lot of talking with founders. I'll ask, was that helpful? Is that not helpful? How can I be helpful? What would make sense? You know, like you, you gotta really understand your customer. And then I, our customer is our founders. Um, and so I do believe that I have a lot to learn um, and always improving. My team's been great. You know, I've, we have two guys on the team that I always ask as well, you know, like, what could we be doing better? Um, you know, and, and if you keep asking that question, you get better. Love it. Love it. It's, it's all about uh, who you surround yourself with. Um, so, Abby, th- thank you so much. Uh, this, this is great. Uh, I, I, I hope we get to co-invest together. Uh, but uh, I'm sure the audience is going to enjoy this this episode. I, I, I love what you're doing in the fund. It's it's a different proposition than the rest, but you know the opportunity is is very very clear. So thank thanks for stopping by. Thanks, Miguel, for having me. Great to see you. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you enjoyed this episode with Abby, General Partner at Primetime Partners. If you want more interviews, make sure to subscribe, follow, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows. It helps, and it means a lot. As always, I want to extend a very special thank you to the great editor, Rafael Ostria, for his amazing work behind the scenes. Signing off till next week, I'm your host, Miguel Armasico.